In the early morning hours of the 17th of June, 2016, a hacker began systematically draining millions of dollars worth of cryptocurrency from a decentralized, autonomous blockchain organization known as the DAO, or simply the DAO. It's hard to fathom what it might feel like at the moment that someone becomes aware that they're in the process of being robbed for such an enormous amount of cryptocurrency. In the case of the DAO hack, the stolen coins belonged to a group of investors, so it was a shared pain. But things also weren't quite so straightforward. Because of the non-trivial nature of the attack, the hacked coins were transferred into a so-called child DAO, where the attacker would need to then move them again before they could take full ownership. Surprisingly, because of a security feature in the DAO contract, the attacker would be forced to wait 27 days before they could transfer the stolen funds out. This window of time provided an unprecedented opportunity for security researchers and blockchain engineers to explore a solution. It quickly became apparent that the choices were limited and not without consequences of their own. My name is Zach Wolf, and this is Into the Abyss. Thank you for turning in to Into the Abyss, an audio adventure into the cryptocurrency and hacking underground. In the second episode of this two-part series, we're going to explore the fall of the DAO. Looking at the events leading up to the hack, the hack itself, and the tumultuous weeks following the hack, in which researchers scrambled through a maze of thorny ethical and technical questions. In part one of this series, The Rise of the Dow, we took a look at the events leading up to the hack and the company itself being built and formed. If you haven't listened to that yet, consider starting there. There was both excitement and tension in the air in the weeks preceding the hack. In many ways, the DAO had become a victim of its success. The founding team had not expected to see such interest, but also hadn't taken steps to limit contributions or put a cap on the fund. According to one estimate, 18,000 individuals invested in the DAO, but it's hard to know for sure. At its peak, when the DAO was live, Ether was trading at $20 a coin, this brought the total USD value to the fund to just over $250 million. With a quarter billion dollars at stake, word spread quickly about the Dow, and there is no doubt this caught the attention of black hat hackers from around the globe. It wasn't just black hats, though. Researchers like Emin Goon Searer had been waving red flags in the weeks leading up to the attack. Goon, as he often goes by, posted an article on the 27th of May, 2016, just a few days before the Dow's contract was to go live, outlining what he saw as seven different causes for concern within the Dow's governance models. I'm not going to go into details of these concerns, but they are fascinating, and I would encourage you to read up on them if you're interested. If these kinds of decentralized code ecosystems do succeed and persist, these gamified types of financial attacks could quite likely become an entirely new attack class vector. I've linked the post of goons in the show notes. Keeping in mind, unlike traditional code, a smart contract lives on the blockchain, 
and by design is supposed to be immutable. Depending on the complexity of the contract and the nature of the bug, fixing the bug in a live smart contract like the DAO can be a challenging process. In his hacking distributed post, Gunn called for a moratorium on proposals. Quote, the preceding concerns motivate a moratorium on proposals to prevent losses due to poor mechanism design. A moratorium would give the DAO time to make critical security updates. We encourage the community to adopt a moratorium until the DAO can be updated. Recall that the DAO would allow investors to vote on proposals in which they wanted to fund. According to Gunn, there were potentially significant issues with the mechanisms of the contract that would enable malicious actors to game the system. Gunn's warnings mostly went ignored, and on the 30th of April, three days after his article, the DAO contract was taken live on the Ethereum mainnet. Five days after the DAO contract went live on Ethereum mainnet, things started to heat up. On the 5th of June, Christian Eitweissner, the founder of Solidity, the programming language used to develop the DAO smart contract, discovered several anti-patterns in Solidity, which could lead to attacks on smart contracts. These were different than what Gunn had pointed out in that they were actual functions of code that could allow an attack as opposed to ingenious methods to game the voting mechanisms. One day after Christian's discovery, on June 6th, a proposal to split the DAO was submitted. We'll talk more about Proposal 59 and DAO splits, but it's important to know that this proposal wasn't inherently malicious or even suspicious. Proposing a split was indeed a legitimate function in the DAO contract by design. We'll see later that whoever proposed this split could have very likely been probing for the attack. Christian published a blog post containing his research four days later on June 10th, in which he explained his findings in detail. Quote, During the last couple of months, examples and patterns that were initially considered best practice were exposed to reality, and some of them actually turned out to be anti-patterns. From a high level, anti-patterns are specific patterns in software development that are considered poor programming practices. Specifically, Christian highlights a particularly dangerous recursive call vulnerability, or race-to-empty vulnerability. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. After his post, at least one high-profile smart contract the MakerDAO, was found to be vulnerable and successfully patched. In that case, the MakerDAO team was able to exploit the vulnerability and move the at-risk coins to safety. Then, on the 12th of June, in a post on DAOHub.org that has been made private and I wasn't able to access, a user, reportedly going by the name ETH Throa, announced he had found this same anti-pattern in the reward section of the DAO code. Within hours, the framework was patched, but the live smart contract couldn't be updated as quickly. Thinking they were in the clear, Stephen Twall, the third founder and COO of Slock, made an optimistic and now infamous post entitled, No DAO Funds at Risk, 
following the Ethereum smart contract recursive call bug discovery. They began the process of pushing an update out to the mainnet DAO contract, a cumbersome process that would require two-week voting period with a majority of token holders voting. Unfortunately, even with Christian's warning and the DAO contract's subsequent re-audits, there was still an issue with the DAO contract. In the early morning hours, the 17th of June, through a series of transactions, a hacker began systematically withdrawing what would amount to over 3.6 million Ether. Researchers had overlooked another, more dangerously positioned instance of the recursive call anti-pattern in the DAO smart contract. In this case, the vulnerability existed in a section of the code that allowed DAO token holders to split off into a child DAO. The idea here was pretty simple. If a token holder in the DAO didn't like the proposals that other token holders were voting on, this function would allow them to spin off a child DAO. Part of that process was moving the investor funds into the newly proposed child DAO. This ends up being where the hacker was able to exploit the recursive call bug. The basic premise for the hack goes like this. A token holder proposes a split. Token holder executes the split. When the DAO goes to withdraw your reward, call the function to execute a split before that withdrawal finishes. The function will start running without updating the user's balance, and the withdraw function can successfully be run more than once before the previous withdrawal has been completed. Imagine five similar people with identical IDs going to five different branches of the same bank. They attempt to place a withdrawal at the exact same time. If one teller happened to give out the cash before they updated the user balance, they could potentially succeed in withdrawing more money from the account than the account actually contained. While this is a bit of a simplified explanation, I've posted a link to the more in-depth technical analysis of the attack in the show notes. In that post, security researcher Phil Dian points out an eerie message the attacker embedded into the blockchain with the infamous Proposal 59. Lonely, so lonely, it reads. Now begins the long and challenging fight to recover the funds. A feeling of panic rippled across the community. No doubt with several I told you so's and a host of face palms as well. The price of ether quickly began to plummet. Because of the non-trivial nature of the exploit, the stolen 3.6 million ether valued at roughly $70 million before the price began to crash, were now sitting in a child DAO and couldn't be moved for 27 days. This child DAO would become known as the Dark DAO. For unknown reasons, the attacker had stopped stealing coins right around 3.6 million. Perhaps this was because she thought she could prevent the price from slipping further, or maybe she began looking for ways to circumvent the 27-day withdrawal delay. Either way, a group of white hat hackers quickly assembled and went to work exploiting the vulnerability to drain the remaining funds from the DAO so they could return them to their rightful owners. This group came to be known as the Robin Hood Group. It's unclear if the hacker knew or cared about the withdrawal delay function before launching the attack. This genuinely odd twist in the story comes from a fail-safe function in the DAO contract 
designed presumably for circumstances just like this. Because of the fail-safe withdraw delay function in the split portion of the contract, the hacker would not be able to withdraw the stolen coins from the dark DAO for 27 days. The clock was ticking, and the community's best minds immediately went to work on a solution. The options to recover the stolen funds proved to be quite contentious. The going mantra amongst many blockchain enthusiasts and users is that the blockchain is immutable, for better or worse. Transactions are irreversible, and that's the end of discussion. The thing about this, though, from a high level, if the majority of a given blockchain network agrees that there is a valid reason to alter the blockchain, then they can choose freely to run a modified version of the software. This process is known as forking. I'm not going to go too deep into blockchain forks, but for the sake of the story, it will be helpful to have a basic understanding of the concept. Generally speaking, blockchain networks consist of a series of nodes. In this context, a node is someone running a core wallet software that contains a copy of a given blockchain. These nodes are what make a blockchain decentralized. A fork in the blockchain comes from an update to the software running on the nodes. Not all software updates are forks, though. An update that implements new rules that affect the blockchain is considered a fork. Again, this is a bit of a simplified explanation, but in the world of forking, there are two main types, hard and soft. A soft fork is a backwards compatible method of upgrading the blockchain node, whereas a hard fork is different in that it's not backwards compatible and results in a new blockchain. Another important distinction with forks is contentious versus non-contentious. We'll talk more about that in a bit. The first solution proposed by the Ethereum community to prevent the attacker from obtaining her stolen coins was a soft fork in the Ethereum blockchain. This soft fork would blacklist all transactions associated with the dark DAO permanently. There was a great deal of support for this solution in the Ethereum community, and on June 30th, the soft fork was scheduled to activate. Unfortunately, just hours before the soft fork went live, a group of researchers identified what they believed to be a denial-of-service vulnerability in the soft fork code. While this potential attack vector wouldn't allow the dark DAO coins to be spent, if exploited, it could diminish the performance of the overall Ethereum network. I'm not going to go into the details of how that DOS vulnerability worked, but if you're interested, I encourage you to check the show notes for a link in which they discuss the attack vector in detail. It is indeed interesting stuff. With the soft fork no longer on the table, the more extreme choice of a hard fork came into play. In the hacking distributed post where the soft fork DOS vulnerability was exposed, they discussed the hard fork option. Quote, from a technical perspective, it's the cleanest, simplest, and most secure option on the table. End quote. Essentially, the hard fork would return the stolen coins to a new DAO that had a single withdraw function, and the original token owners would be able to withdraw their coins. When you move away from the technical perspective and into the ideological perspective, things become less clear. This issue, in fact, became the root of a very heated discussion. In an excellent post on the CryptoCompare website, they cataloged both sides of the argument nicely. Quote, 
the anti-hard fork group had the following arguments. Code is law. The original statement of the DAO terms and conditions should stand under any circumstances. Things that happen on the blockchain are immutable, and they should never change regardless of what the outcome is. There is a slippery slope, and once you modify slash censor, for one, there is not a lot to keep you from doing it for other contracts. The decision to return the money is short-sighted, and you might reduce the value of ETH down the line based on your decisions to act now. This is a bailout. Users that supported the hard fork argued, code is law is too drastic of a statement at the current time, and humans should have a final say through social consensus. The hacker could not be allowed to profit from the exploit as it is ethically wrong and the community should intervene. The slippery slope argument is not valid as the community is not beholden to past decisions. People can act rationally and fairly in each situation. It would be problematic to leave such a big piece of the Ether supply in the hands of a malicious actor, and it might harm the value of Ether down the line. This is not a bailout, as money isn't being taken from the community. It's just a return of funds to the original investors. It would stop an ongoing war between the white hat hackers and the hacker that would demoralize the community and possibly continue for many years. The exploit was big enough to take action and reverse it. If the community acts now, it will make people that are unethical think twice before using Ethereum as their platform of choice. A hard fork to return the funds would keep regulators in the legal system out of the debate. Our mess, we fix it. End quote. In the end, a vote took place to decide on a direction forward. Unsurprisingly, the vote itself was not without controversy. Critics claimed the vote happened on short notice and lasted a quick 12 hours, not giving everyone enough time to participate. Either way, 89% of those that did vote voted in favor of the hard fork, and that should have been the end of it. Except that it wasn't. A small group of anti-hard forkers showing extreme dedication to their ideology pledged to keep the old chain alive. Recall that when a hard fork occurs, it's not backwards compatible, and the network nodes are required to upgrade their software or they will no longer be a part of the active network. In the case of a non-contentious hard fork, everyone simply upgrades their nodes and moves forward with the new chain. In this case, however, those that contended with the hard fork decision decided to maintain the old chain, the one in which the hacker would still have access to the stolen DarkDAO coins. In theory, you might expect that the old chain with a small number of nodes wouldn't have any value, might get attacked, or fade away quickly, but as uh, it turns out, this was not the case. Those that stayed on the original Ethereum blockchain dubbed themselves Ethereum Classic and continue to maintain that blockchain to this day, with the current price being just below $5 a coin. It's also worth note that when the hard fork occurred and Ethereum Classic was born, Ethereum Classic coins began trading at roughly $0.60 cents a coin. Anyone that held Ethereum in their wallets at the time of the hard fork immediately had coins on both chains. That is, except the DAO hacker, of course, who only had coins on the Classic network. Within two weeks, the Ethereum Classic network had amassed a global market cap 
of almost $200 million. Stop and think about that for a second. A cryptocurrency network that went from non-existent to $200 million in two weeks. It's unclear to me how much the attacker was able to profit from his Ethereum Classic coins. It will likely entirely depend on when the coins were sold and what the price was, a number of other factors. One estimate put the USD value around $17 million. That would be uh, two weeks after the hard fork. Not a bad haul, but certainly not without its downside. Given the public nature of the Ethereum blockchain and the notoriety of this attack, he or she will likely be spending the rest of their life looking over their shoulder. Either way, to this day, the hacker has not been caught, and still, little information is known about them. At the time of this recording, there's still over $15 million worth of Ether in the original DAO contract. At its peak, the DAO held nearly 14% of all Ethereum in circulation. And while it's now sitting in 7th place on the list of the world's largest crowdfunded projects, the DAO did for a time occupy the number one spot. Thanks for listening to this second episode of Into the Abyss. If you enjoyed the show, please do consider sharing it with friends and subscribing, perhaps even comment. You can find the show notes and subscription info at intotheabyss.fm. If you have direct feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can reach me directly at zw at intotheabyss.fm. I've done my best to get the facts and details correct on these stories. But if you notice any mistakes or have corrections, please do reach out and let me know. There's a lot of moving parts here, and a lot of these stories are reported differently. And I've got to go back and forth between sources trying to get you know, uh, the best shot at the, the accurate information. At the same time, if you have ideas for future shows or requests, I would love to hear those. Thanks for tuning in to Into the Abyss.